So this is the, the fourth of ten. If you're tracking, this is the fourth of ten covenant renewal weeks here at Christ Fellowship. We progressed through the Ephesians 4 charge to maintain the unity purchased by Christ for the church and created by the Spirit in the church. We've progressed through that and through the 2 Peter 3.18 charge to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, both personally and corporately. Last week, through our Colossians 3 born pledge to love one another, which Chris did a great job last week to show us from the text that is a lot more than just a sentimental idea. As the whole concept of love and affectionate care within the body was fleshed out in Colossians 3 in a number of one another commands. They're actually um, all over the epistles of the New Testament. Our text this week and the vow that was birthed out of it in our covenant it really is not very far removed from last week at all and could probably very accurately be viewed as a subcategory of it. As in the overarching charge to the body is to love one another and this text this week is another explanation how. It's one verse. It's a really well-known verse. If I were to read our fourth vow first, you could probably tell me what the text is. So let's do that. We will rejoice at the blessings of others. We will, as God enables us, care for our brothers and sisters in distress, sickness, and poverty. That's the vow. If I were to ask you, based upon our reading in Romans 12, verses 1 through 21, which verse is that? You'd probably be able to tell me it's Romans 12, 15 which says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Here's a very simple way to to place our text this morning, because once again, we're jumping 12 chapters into a very um, weighty letter of the New Testament. So here's just a really simple way to place our text this morning. Paul opens the letter expressing in Romans 1 his ongoing desire to be with the believers in the church at Rome. He desires to be with them, preaching and teaching the gospel to them, so that, according to Paul in Romans 1, their faith, as in his faith and the believers in Rome, faith, might be strengthened. Their faith by a greater understanding of the gospel that he hopes to preach to them and teach to them and his faith by their embrace of the gospel and by their perseverance in it through suffering. Up until this point, Paul had not yet made it to Rome despite repeated attempts to get there. As he says clearly in Romans 1 and verse 13, I often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented. So we're providing some context here. Paul longs to be there, physically present with these believers. He longs to preach the gospel to the believers there for their strengthening and to the unbelievers there for their conversion. Humanly speaking, Paul keeps being hindered in his efforts, but providentially speaking, as is so often the case, it simply wasn't God's timing, nor was it God's way for Paul to see Rome yet. 
And what I mean by that is Paul would eventually make it to Rome, but it would not be until years later, and it wouldn't be as a free man. It would be as a prisoner. So one way to process the book of Romans is, Romans is Paul's effort to accomplish in writing what he had hoped he could accomplish among them in person. It's his effort to the believers in Rome to proclaim and to defend and to explain the gospel, as well as his effort to charge his readers toward a gospel-centered life. A gospel-centered life both among themselves, toward each other, as well as toward outsiders. The gospel proclamation part is chapters 1 through 11. The gospel application part is chapters 12 through 16. We read chapter 12 in its entirety this morning, even though we're really only going after verse 15. But as always, the verse we're zeroing in on doesn't stand on its own. It comes in a context, and that context is important. And perhaps most important is just for us to remember for a moment how chapter 11 ends, right before he gets to chapter 12. So after walking his readers through the gospel from the fall in chapter 1 to glorification in chapter 8, Paul grounds the entirety of our redemption in the eternal purposes of God. Let me just read this text for us this morning. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the unbreakable chain of God's purposes in our redemption. And after going into even more detail in chapters 9 through 11 concerning God's good and just purposes, the way that Paul concludes it all in Romans chapter 11 and verse 33 is, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things and to him be the glory forever. Amen. The reason why that's so urgent to remember is because it's very interesting to me that the the next thing he says, which is the first thing he says as he turns the corner toward what the gospel means for those who believe. So, gospel application. The first thing he says is not ponder this. Meaning, if I could just summarize and paraphrase, meaning the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God are deep. His judgments and his ways are unsearchable. And he didn't look to you for counsel in his purposes, nor was his arm twisted by your works or by your gifts or by your offerings. He did what he did and he does what he does for his own glory. And because he is good, his purposes for his own glory are for our good. And Paul doesn't follow that up primarily by saying, therefore, spend the rest of your lives plumbing the depths 
and counting the riches and pondering his justice and his mercy. Now, certainly, all of those things are implications of the gospel and absolutely necessary in life. But Paul's more instant and urgent charge than rest and be thankful and ponder in response to 11 chapters on the depth and unsearchableness and sovereign goodness of our God in our redemption is worship. Worship. Listen again to Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, therefore, taking into consideration all of chapters 1 through 11. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Certainly, resting in the unbreakable chain of God's promises in the gospel is necessary, and pondering and plumbing the depth and the unsearchableness of his riches and his grace is important. But what Paul does here reveals that those responses are subcategories that exist alongside many others under a greater and more overarching call to worship. So your calling in life in response to Jesus' declaration, it is finished, is not to let up or to let go or to get lazy. Your calling is to worship this great God who planned and accomplished and applies this deep and rich and unsearchable redemption. And what Paul goes on to say in the remainder of this book, is what it's supposed to look like in your life. And it starts with the imagery of sacrifice. So understand something here. We are inching up to Romans twelve fifteen Because we want to see it biblically as a faith-filled thoroughly spiritual, worshipful, not to mention obedient response to our redemption. And it's no accident that Paul uses sacrificial language here to set it all off. He's invoking intentionally the imagery of Old Testament sacrifices, which is people under the Old Covenant brought to him as their faith-filled response to his word and his works on their behalf. Offerings and sacrifices were a significant part of Israel's worship. And don't miss the holy and acceptable or pleasing language here either. Because a very real component of their faith-filled response to God's word and God's works was a serious concern about holiness and God's pleasure. Brothers and sisters, these have always been very serious concerns for the remnant of true believers. It's always been that way in every generation, including our own. And you can draw from that that I'm saying if 
personal holiness and God's pleasure is not a concern to you. Or maybe if I could use a positive word there, if it's not a passion of yours, that I'm saying to you, more accurately, I am pleading with you, you must be born again. Repent and believe the gospel. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, meaning it wasn't a concern to you. Because you were unrighteous to the core. Enslaved to sin by nature and lovers of your own enslavement in your daily practice. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, look at those words, the fruit that you get, the fruit that you get, not the fruit that you earn, not the fruit that you produce, the fruit that you get, receive as a result of God setting you free from your captivity and uniting you to himself, that fruit leads to sanctification. And its end, eternal life. If a concern for holiness and God's pleasure is not your concern, to put it softly, I think you have to wrestle through to whom you are united. The first Adam, or the second, or the last Adam. To whom are you enslaved? Your sin with no concern for righteousness? Or God with a serious and an urgent and a joyful concern and passion about holiness and God's pleasure? Which concern doesn't ever lead you to think you work for it? Or somehow you earn the fruit of it? Which concern, rather, you recognize as blood-bought and spirit-born and recognizes the fruit that leads to it comes to you as a gift through your union with Christ. The difference being that recognition leaves you as the joyful, thankful, faithful receiver who is eager to glorify God and bring Him divine pleasure by displaying the fruit of His kind gifts that come to you in union with Him. Which is exactly what Paul is talking about here in this last quarter of the book of Romans. And he invokes the imagery of Old Testament sacrifice, this language, because this is the way God's believing remnant has always responded to his word and to his works. So, in regard to them, God had spoken clearly concerning the kind and the condition of the animals his people were to bring to him. And the humble, faith-filled heart disposition which with his people were to worship him. And Cain is the example that Jude and John and the writer of Hebrews appeal to in the New Testament as a reminder. It was never anything goes. Nor did his people ever set the terms of what worship looked like personally in life as in Cain and Abel or corporately under the Mosaic law. Keep in mind, 
He appealed old te- the Old Testament has one major difference here in Romans chapter 12. The difference is the sacrifice being called for here is not of animals, but of people. Of you and me as those who stake every ounce of confidence in us in the person and work of Christ. Along with that, notice that these sacrifices, unlike those of old, are not brought to die as a temporary covering for sin in anticipation of the one who would come to put away sin forever by the sacrifice of himself, as Hebrews 9.26 says. The sacrifices Paul calls for here from the believing community in Romans 12 are living sacrifices. Precisely because Jesus has come and atoned for the sins of his people once and for all, uniting them to him in his death and raising them with him in his resurrection. And brothers and sisters, wherever you find this person on planet Earth, a professing believer in the atoning death and the triumphant resurrection of Jesus, somebody full of faith in his promises, looking toward his return, concerned about personal holiness and God's pleasure, eager to display in the context of the community and to the world the depth and the riches and the unsearchableness of God's goodness and grace to them. There you find what Paul describes in verse 1 as a worshiper of God. And wherever you find gatherings of these worshipers on planet Earth, you find a church. So this whole text is an appeal for worshipers. Those who profess to believe in the redemption accomplished by Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. To respond to the riches and depth and unsearchableness of what God has planned and Christ has done with a life of worship. And don't miss where Paul grounds this appeal. She says in verse 1 is in God's mercy. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Worshipper is not a title that you earn by your performance. But brothers and sisters, it is who you are through God's mercy. And while this phrase, be what you are, has probably been used and abused and misapplied over the years, it is absolutely applicable here. And it's grounded in God's mercy. So so if when we read the entirety of Romans 12, if we would have backed up just one verse earlier in our reading this morning, we would have been reminded that the display of mercy is why God designed what he designed and why he's done what he has done. Listen to Romans 11 and verse 32. That he might have mercy on all. And Paul was writing here to a body of believers who had experienced God's mercy in their conversion. And he appeals to it now once again as he calls them to worship as the obvious and the spiritual response to the mercy that's on display in their redemption. So with that foundation, the verses that 
follow, really through the end of the letter, are what faith-filled, living sacrifice as spiritual worship looks like in God's people. I, I do I appreciate the way that one commentator, and uh, I've totally lost track of who it was, but I do remember that I didn't say this, so it must have come from somewhere. <laughs> I like how one guy organizes chapter 12. Verses 3 through 8, Paul reminds us that we live out our transformed existence in community. So I do want to read those verses because they are an excellent follow-up to Chris's sermon last week. Listen again to Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And then, in regard to the rest of the chapter, this mysterious author says, These verses call for a humble and peaceable attitude toward others, both fellow Christians and non-Christians, as a key test of the sincerity of love. So I say all that to say Romans 12 through 16 is not optional, nor is it simply for those who are more practically oriented. Nor is Romans 1 through 11 slanted toward the more theologically disposed. Brothers and sisters, we need to be acquainted with chapters 12 through chapter 16 of the book of Romans as we are As much as we are with the first 11 chapters, we need to be as acquainted with chapters 12 through 16 as we are with chapters 1 through 11 is actually how I hope to say that. You can have chapters 1 through 11 memorized, but if chapters 12 through 16 are not a concern to you or nowhere to be found in you, chapters 1 through 11 as well versed as you might be in them ultimately mean nothing more to you than some other engaging novel from which you can recall facts and perhaps recite the grand storyline. Romans 12 through 16 is not only expected of you, If you profess to stake your all on the person and work of Christ, which is why so much of it is in the form of imperative command. But these commands will also be desired and pursued and on display by you because this is who you've been born to again to be. As well as who you are being made to become by the ongoing work of the Spirit in you. And the reason what you are in Christ and what you are being made to be through Christ by the Spirit exists here in the form of commands is, according to the quote above, a test of your sincerity. I actually think that's a really 
helpful way to process what Paul is saying here. Because when you read these commands, there is nothing surprising. There's nothing surprising and there's nothing even new here. Just listen to them again. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what's good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. My screen will go up. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. There's nothing new there. There's nothing shocking there. So why does he say it here? And why does he say it in the form of commands? Quite possibly to test the sincerity of your profession. I think it's 1 Peter chapter 1 all over again. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And the way Paul Peter follows that up is to say, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Perhaps the most shocking thing Paul says in Romans chapter 12 is in the string of verses in which our one verse is found. Verses 14 through 21. And the words I'm talking about are only shocking if you do not know the Gospels, because what Paul is saying here is simply a reiteration of Jesus' own words. Nevertheless, there is some shock value in these verses. And the the shock value of these verses is for different reasons, where, where he's talking about things like, bless those who persecute you, associate with the lowly, repay nobody evil for evil, uh, do not avenge yourselves, feed your enemies, overcome evil with good. Those statements are somewhat shocking because they in no way appeal to our depravity and are in reality completely contrary to our natural inclination. But again, Paul isn't making these things up here. He is reiterating what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, which was an exposition of the law of Moses. So this has always been the calling of God's people. But there is a different shock value to a different set of verses in this chapter. So if on the one hand, the bless those who persecute you type verses shock us because they strike us so opposite of who we are by nature and what we want by nature. Verses like verse 15 shock us not because they sound so opposite to who we are and what we want by nature, but because they sound so obvious. Listen again to verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. 
Weep with those who weep. The more I thought on this verse in the fourth vow in our church covenant, which says, again, we will rejoice at the blessings of others. We will, as God enables us, care for our brothers and sisters in distress, sickness, and poverty. The more I thought, what? Why is this even a command and why does this even need to be a vow? Isn't Romans 12, 15 one of the most obvious verses in the Bible? And isn't the fourth vow in our church covenant possibly the most unnecessary vow of the ten? And as I'm thinking on these things, I'm literally wondering, why did God command us to do something that just seems so obvious? And as I'm thinking on it, I'm watching one of my kids on the brink of a jealous fit because one of the other kids has been commended for something. And it perfectly illustrated why we need to be commanded to the obvious. And then it hit me. Maybe I'm giving myself a little bit too much credit as well by suggesting that this just seems so natural and obvious. And maybe I'm actually short-sighting the effect of the fall and the depth of my own depravity. So let's just test this out a little bit. When you heard me say, what? Doesn't this seem so obvious? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. If you at all nodded or laughed in agreement with me, I want to just ask you the same thing I had to ask myself. If this is so obvious... Is this you? Does this describe you? Does obedience to this command describe you? Seriously, would others, not your mom, not your dad, not your husband, not your wife, not your aunt or your uncles or your cousins or your grandmother. This is redemption on display in the church through those who've been redeemed by Christ and reborn as worshipers of God. This is Christ's redemption on display in the church from member to member and in the world from redeemed worshipers of God to unbelieving, even persecuting non-Christians who, just like you and I, share in the joys and the sufferings of life but outside of you are left to process common grace blessings arrogantly, as if they've earned them or deserved them, and common sufferings bitterly or angrily or even suicidally. So would others describe you as somebody who rushes? Rushes, as in you don't assume others are going to cover it, as if it's some duty. But you're quick and you're eager to rush to rejoice with others when divine blessings come their way, even if life in that moment really stinks for you. As well as somebody who rushes just as quickly to others when they're weeping and they're heartbroken. Again, not assuming they'll be okay. Or somebody else will help you. Bear their burden. Never leaning on the pathetic excuse. I just don't know what to say. 
Brothers and sisters, look at the verse. Paul doesn't even say you have to say anything. He just says, go weep with them. Weep with them. Rejoice with them. And I'm not asking this as one of those guilt trip questions because we all know that we can do better. Kind of like, how much did you read your Bible? Or how much do you pray? We all know we can do better. I'm not asking it as one of those guilt trip questions. I'm just asking if you would agree with me that the actual words in this verse seem so basic and so obvious. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Is this your role? Not only with your husband and your wife and your kids and your parents, but here with your covenant faith family. And you're not allowed to excuse yourself or your husband or your wife by saying, that's just not me. That's just not him. It's just not her. Have you ever stopped to consider how many times we let ourselves sinfully off the hook with those words? Somehow forgetting that what we are saying in that moment is describing who we were in Adam rather than who we are in Christ and who we are being made to be by the work of the Spirit. Faith-filled worshipers who have died to self and who are eager to display now the fruit of Christ's redemption in acts of sacrificial love that serve others in their greatest need and foster greater unity within the body. That is who you are. So that's just not me. Doesn't cut it. It won't fly. And that's exactly the point. You don't excuse yourself from the command. Bless those who persecute you. By saying, it's just not me. I'm just a little bit more vengeful than the average guy. Or bless and do not curse them. Well, that's just not me either. I've actually always just tended to curse those who wish evil on me. And that's just who I am. And you can continue to apply the absurdity down the line of these commands. Do not be haughty. But associate with the lowly, actually. I'm just naturally impressed by myself. And I'd never associate on a personal level with anyone who was inferior to me or who wouldn't help puff my image in the community. It's just me. So if there's absurdity on both sides of verse 15, Paul is not writing verse 15 to a specific personality type or gift set. This is you by virtue of your union with Christ. This is not who you were in Adam through his fall, nor is it what was ever screaming to manifest itself through you for the display of God's unfathomable riches in your redemption while you were in union with Adam and condemned under the just judgment of God. And Paul has already said in Romans, those concerns were nothing to you then, nor should they have been. But brothers and sisters, what I want to say to you this morning is, however, deep to our core, the fall reached, which was all the way. Heart, mind, soul, spirit, total depravity. 
However, deep to our core, we are depraved, Jesus' death and resurrection redeemed, and our union with Christ and the Spirit's work in us is in the process of transforming for God's glory on display. And God's design in our redemption is to display his glory through his redeemed people, joining themselves in covenant to each other in local manifestations of the greater body of his son, which we call the church and us as churches. It's where his redeemed people live out their redemption as worshipers of the true and living God. And Romans 12 through 16 is telling us how to do it. And specifically in our text, it is our sincere, obvious, Holy Spirit-affected response to God's riches toward us in Christ as living sacrifices, in part here by rejoicing together over God's blessings and weeping together over God's good, but sometimes heartbreaking providences. In Christ, where we are free from envy and free from jealousy when others are blessed. So that now we're eager to enter into those blessings with them. Free from assuming that others will be okay when they're suffering or hoping that somebody else might alleviate the need for me to rush to their side and enter into their sorrows and weep with them. Hear me out, brothers and sisters, free in Christ, free from the sinful and calculated smugness that pours water on the flames of rejoicing and free from the sinfully calculated elusiveness that I am afraid not only characterizes our age, but probably more to agree than I want to admit, to a degree than I want to admit, at times characterizes our church. That so blocks the light of God's grace from penetrating the darkness of his providential sufferings. Brothers and sisters, we are free to be what we are in Christ. We are free to be the body of Christ where if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, we all rejoice together. So my charge to you this morning is admittedly admittedly somewhat cliché. Whatever, it's right. Be what you are. Christ fellowship. Be the body of Christ and us as individual members of it. Fulfill your vow to enter into each other's joys and sorrows. And so love your brothers and sisters here. And so offer up to God a sweet-smelling sacrifice, one that's holy and one that is well-pleasing to him as part of our spiritual worship. And that's the end to which I'm going to pray. I ask you to join me at this time. Let's pray.
Father, we've been reminded for four weeks now that this is not a joke. This life that we have in Christ is not a joke. It is not a light thing. It is not a lazy thing. It is not a selfish thing. It is a dead serious and somehow immensely joyful life that you've redeemed us to live. And Father, the corporate nature of it only increases the seriousness and the urgency as well as multiplies the joys. So Father, dispense immense grace to Christ's fellowship. Lord, I am afraid that just like every church of every generation, we are products of our age. Feel the, the pull, the daily pull to s- smugness and jealousy and elusivity. And yet, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. So continue your gracious, eternal, effectual work of grace in us. And may this be a body that to ever increasing degrees enters into each other's deep joys and deep sorrows. And may Christ be on display through it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.